The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Hill and I'm joined today by Katie Walls, The Spectator, and Stephen Bush, The Financial Times. Now, last night saw 18 divisions on amendments from the House of Lords on the Illegal Migration Bill. That's the most number of divisions in this Parliament back-to-back. Katie, talk us through what we saw last night and uh, where we go from here on this bill. Yes, I think there's a lot of um, MPs this morning looking quite tired after what was this mammoth session. But ultimately, the whips were pretty happy of how it went because they managed to defeat every single one of the amendments that they hadn't already made a plan to come to an agreement and, and accept in. Now, a handful of amendments the government actually uh, gave way on ahead of the votes, such as reducing the number of time a pregnant woman would be held in detention as, as part of the process. But when it comes to some of the amendments they chose not to offer concessions on, so they did offer some concessions, but they weren't enough to win the backing of some Tory MPs. So the remaining, I think, probably the stickiest issues, if you look at some of those votes, and James, you have a very good blog on Coffee House on this, relates to unaccompanied children, also the victims of modern slavery. So you saw um, the government decide to effectively face down Theresa May, who has been on a campaign to try and protect modern slavery, which she sees as a legacy from her time as Prime Minister, um, something she did for her aide Fiona Hill. And she spoke in the chamber saying, um, I know that ministers have said this bill will enable more perpetrators to be stopped, but on modern slavery, I genuinely believe it will do the opposite. It will enable more slave drivers to operate and make money out of human misery. And she was one of 16 Conservative MPs who rebelled. Now, I think it means that, yes, you're seeing, uh, you know, some Tory MPs, so blue on blue in the chamber, effectively. I think with a bill like this, that was always going to happen. And the point is, what is the bill going to be left with? And is the government going to be able to get it through? ahead of the summer recess, the Whip's office have ultimately planned in terms of their timings for six rounds of ping pong. Um, so that is, you know, going back and forth. They expect the Lords to put them back in, then MPs will be asked to strip them out again, and then hopefully you get to the point where that is done by the time you get to the summer recess. I think they're also hoping that the Lords almost get a bit broken down by the time I had to stay up till 3am doing this and, and potentially burnt down. But Lots of the peers do feel so strongly about this legislation saying it's badly thought through and they take moral issue of it too, that it's still, I think, not a dead cert. It's going to uh, you know, be on the timetable the government want. And of course, if they fail to do it in this session, then you could have, um, they might have to go for the effort of an act of parliament, which some ministers think is the more likely option if they cannot do this. Um, Stephen, talk us through Labour's thinking on the legal migration bill. I mean, I was talking to one non, non-Labour MP earlier and they were saying that they thought that Labour wouldn't really push fighting back on these, some of these amendments, except for the ones highlighted by people like Theresa May on things like modern slavery, because they have a bit of cover there, perhaps. How does Labour approach this bill? Well, Labour essentially wants to make every argument... It, well, the Labour leadership, crucially, wants to make every argument it has about immigration about competence. So, as well as the fact that ones where Theresa May is at odds with the leadership allow them to have some cover, they can turn that into, well, you're divided, right? As I imagine listeners to this podcast have heard many, many times and perhaps sick of hearing, there is a reason why the Labour Party implores its MPs to argue against, say, the Rwanda scheme, not on the grounds and it's immoral, but that it won't work. 
And that is very much their strategy for all of this stuff is to go, okay, well, you know, 13 years, you failed on this, you're legislating to cover your failures. Which is why there is, you know, some of them do feel there's a bit of a risk in these rounds of ping pong, right? Which is that the longer the debate goes on, and we see this, right? If you if you watch any, if you watch or listen to any current affairs debate programme, occasionally a, a Labour politician will slip from the approved line of this isn't working, this is about competence, to this is immoral, which is not where they want to be. I mean, do people in the government think this is actually going to work? I mean, we've already seen crossings now, you know, only sort of 4 or 5% down on what they were last year. Uh, the Rwanda scheme isn't up and running yet. Will this bill actually have any meaningful dent in deterring or stopping those small boat crossings? Ultimately, the government needs both the bill to become law and the Rwanda scheme to get off the ground in more ways than one, in order for them to have their plan, um, to have a chance of working, at which point they then need to make it operational, which some in government have always said would be the bigger task than winning the court judgments or getting this through the Lords, is actually then making sure this actually works in practice, which is going to take a lot of work. So there's many steps before you get there. It's interesting, speaking to some in government and the party, there are a few people who think that perhaps it's better if this bill doesn't pass because if it does ultimately and then it doesn't work do you look weaker more incompetent and if it doesn't pass ultimately Labour's record is showing they haven't voted for it um you know they have not helped with it and you can also you know blame the vested interests you blame the courts you blame the peers you blame the Labour Party I do think there's a bit of a luck thing though in terms of political weather whereas if Rishi Sunak was doing a bit better in the polls I think when the Court of Appeal had come against the Rwanda scheme, which is the second part of this, and ideally you want the two in tandem. And he put out that statement saying, you know, I don't think this is the right decision by the court. It could have been one of those moments if you think about 2019 and prorogation and taking on those things, which is, you know, vested interests and, and almost, you know, uh, Tories saying, yes, the courts are wrong to interfere. Instead, because of where the polls were and the general mood in Westminster and beyond, it was much more another problem for Rishi Sunak. You know, mm. I wrote that. When it rains, it pours because it was more like his problems are mounting up. So I'm not sure after this long in government, blaming Labour for not voting for your plan is as potent as perhaps it might be at a different time. And therefore, I think the majority view is that this is the best chance I need to show they're trying to do something. I think there is a question about obviously timing these things because there's lots of disappointment in government by the Court of Appeal verdict. But again, just uh, surveying different opinions here. You know, I've spoken to one MP who thinks it's not such a bad thing if you get the Rwanda flight nearer to the election. Because if you were to say, get them up by September, in a good case scenario, you start to show your program really works. Another, it suggests that the deterrent effect isn't really there. Whereas perhaps the, you know, the lightning bolt shot of having a flight to Rwanda, a couple, and then an election would be, you know, stick with this label, we'll stop it, could be the message. Um, so I think there's so many ifs around when they work. I think what is probably where there is more consensus is just great concern that the number's going to go up, not down. Rishi Sunak obviously gave that press conference a few months ago trying to say where we are last year is down, down slightly, but so much of this is weather dependent. Does the Albania deal uh, do enough to actually keep the numbers down in the long term? And therefore you're going to have difficult, you're going to have difficult figures going in. The question is, do you, can you get to a point by the end of the year going into an election year where you can start to show signs of progress at the very least? And Stephen, talking of problems bounty up for Rishi Sunak, What's coming down the track on public sector pay? 
the central issue, right, is to end both the industrial disputes, which everyone notices, and people leaving the public sector either for the private sector or an equivalent job in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, etc., etc. The independent pay bodies and indeed Jeremy Hunt basically think you've got to get to about 6%. You've got to have a 6% pay increase. Now, what they don't want to do because they think it would be inflationary is fund that by borrowing. And what they don't want to do because they've met the average Conservative MP is fund that by raising taxes. So to do it, they're going to have to find cuts within existing departmental budgets. Mm. Now, if you are a department which has a lot of capital spending, then you can see how that is doable from a political perspective. But of course, the persistent problem uh, of basically of the United Kingdom under both parties is inadequate capital investment, right? Very good IFT report by Rachel Wolf and Sam Friedman setting out this, this out in the context of the NHS. Very few managers, and we invest much less in new machines and equipment precisely because in the nicest possible way, you know, some of my best friends are managers, but who is who is the person whose job it is to replace you with a computer? It's your manager, right? So, of course, if you don't have enough managers and they don't have enough power, you are going to have, you know, technologically undynamic bits of the, of the public services. So... I think it's very hard to see how the government's not going to have to have some very difficult public rows about things it's cutting. Yes, most infrastructure projects you just cut, no one notices, and then in five years' time everyone goes, oh, isn't it a shame that our IT isn't better? But some of this stuff, I think, will be quite painful, not least because the thing that effective spending department ministers always do mm. is they go, oh, well, my department, if you did this, you know. <laughs> you know remember there always used to be that thing in summers past when there'd be some story, usually in the Telegraph, about how, well, you know, the, the British Army couldn't couldn't retake... The Falklands. The Falklands, yeah. Or the Red Arrows. Or the Red Arrows, yeah, yeah. Just a classic, very effective way of, like, winning winning departmental spending battles. And I think we're going to see... Not just stories like that coming out of the MOD, but stories like that coming out across the whole of the British state. And the subtext will be spending departments going, I'm not finding my 6% in my budget. Yes, I think we're now in a period where, as Stephen says, a decision that could come as soon as, you know, this week is going to dominate the political conversation for some time to come. Because uh, we seem to be leaving an era I think where you had the option even of going to more borrowing I don't think that the government think you can do that it doesn't feel as though Rachel Reeves thinks she can really do that so if that is the case it means you just have difficult decisions where you go and therefore the options are effectively do you ignore the independent pay review bodies that's probably unfair to public sector workers particularly when the government has repeatedly cited them previously as cover for not going you know above them do you do tax rises? Is that fair to those who have to pay higher taxes for these? Or do you then do cuts? And then you end up at cuts. But it's much easier to save to find the savings and to, of course, go into that. And if you think, you know, James, one thing we haven't spoken about today is the launch of the Growth Commission oh, by yes. Liz Truss. But if we think back to what Liz Truss was doing as Prime Minister, she had a lot of ideas in terms of some spending on energy, also in terms of tax cuts. But what it was missing really um, was anything about spending cuts. And then it was only after things started to go wrong with the mini budget. I remember Simon Clark giving that 
interview back when he was in cabinet saying undoubtedly there was fat to be trimmed um but the top level of cuts somebody was talking about you thought how is that going to be politically viable and i think the question is when it comes to some of these departments are the cabinet ministers um going to you know keep up the united front and find them or is it going to get quite choppy we wait to see with interest thank you katie thank you Stephen, and thank you very much for listening to coffee house shots <laughs>